This is Dennis Rundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, spiritmatterstalk.com. Our uh, guest today, uh, Dr. Richard Miller. He is a clinical psychologist, author, researcher, yogic scholar, and spiritual teacher. He's the founder, executive director, and president of the Board of Directors of Integrative Restoration Institute. Uh, Richard, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our show today. Thank you for inviting me, uh, Dennis, and so lovely to be here. Richard, uh, you, are, you wear many hats. You're a scholar, you're a clinical psychologist, and a longtime uh, teacher of various aspects of the yoga tradition. Um, what came first? Uh, were you interested in psychology and then got interested in yogic teachings, or did it come the other way? You know, I would say it came the other way as a youth. I was really intrigued by the question, who am I and what is all of this? How did we get here? Those kind of deep existential philosophical questions uh, started in me actually very young. Um, along the way, I got involved in psychology when I was in college and, and really took off in my interest in psychology. And then when I was in San Francisco in 1970, new to the Bay Area, looking to meet people, I, I ended up taking a yoga class. And that first uh, yoga class at the end during the meditation, I had a most extraordinary uh, realization of, I, I would say, my unity with the entire universe that brought together both my early philosophical yearnings, longings, and my uh, love of psychology. So I ended up uh, both diving into yoga as a, as a way of making my way in the world, as well as becoming both a marriage and family therapist and a clinical psychologist by license. So I was able to combine the two paths, especially when I met my first real mentor in psychology, a woman, Laura Cummings, who had just come here from the Far East, and right from the beginning of my mentoring as a psychologist, we were integrating yoga, Buddhism, the philosophies of Patanjali, as well as clinical psychology, as that was her background. So mm -hmm. I was in a unique position right from the very beginning. Richard, this is of uh, particular interest to me because, uh, uh, like you, I was, uh, you know, I studied uh, psychology as an undergraduate. And then I. Uh, I went to graduate school in clinical psychology, and right around then I started uh, meditation. I started TM, and uh, you know, started reading a lot of Eastern philosophy, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, books of that sort. And and I thought this is great. I can really integrate uh, so much of this. Takes modern psychology, and and really takes it to the next level. How to develop a whole person. But at that time, this was the early 70s, uh, when I was in graduate school, and it fell on deaf ears. Uh, people were not receptive in the in the world of clinical psychology, the people that I was exposed to, uh, to that. So then I made a decision to leave that and go purely into teaching meditation and go in that direction because I felt uh, on a clinical level I could do more by doing that. And I'm just wondering what was your experience when you first had this thought to uh, integrate uh, uh, these teachings uh, uh, from the East with, with, with uh, clinical psychology? Uh, how were you received and... How did you react to that? Well, 
I found myself in a very unique position looking back now because this is 1970, 71, 72, when there's not much um, acceptance, say, in the, in the traditional realms of psychology for the Eastern perspectives. And yet here I am with a mentor. Her uh, background, she studied with a, uh, an associate of R.D. Lang in the existential. Mm-hmm. Eric Rome in the humanistic, grew up in a Buddhist community, was taught yoga as a youth, as a child by her mother. So she came to me with a fully integrated package. And so I never actually thought twice about it. It was just the teachings that I was receiving from my mentor. When I went to get my master's, um, I found myself in a unique program that allowed me to do anything that I wanted. And so I was able to begin to integrate the spiritual teachings with my master's degree. And then I went to California Institute Studies for my clinical PhD and again found myself in a receptive environment where I was able to write papers instead of uh, social psychology. I wrote my paper on uh, uh, satyam, truthfulness, and the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and its uh, ramifications on social psychology. So (laughs) I found myself in a very unique position surrounded by a sea of traditional psychologists um, studying the Eastern traditions and integrating and reading all the Eastern texts, like you say, the Gita and the Upanishad, Mm -hmm. Patanjali, what I did experience was a tremendous aloneness that I found myself isolated because my peers had no clue what I was talking about. And actually, for a while, I was in another university working a little bit on my Ph.D., and I went, remember talking to the dean, and he said, you know, I don't have a clue what it is that you're interested in. And that's when I realized I needed to go over to California Institute of Integral Studies. Mm. Um, and you were lucky that you were in the Bay Area right. at, at a time when CIIS and uh, ITP and places like that were were just getting off the ground, and you, you could um, participate in all that, weren't you? It was, and, and in those years, the professors, say, at CIIS, most of them were from the Far East with 30, 40-year meditation practice. Mm-hmm. And so, again, the maturity of the teachers and mentors I was having was incredible. Over in the other side, though, in the yoga community, everybody was getting into hatha yoga, mm-hmm. but I found myself, again, mm-hmm. in a sea of people who weren't really interested in the deeper aspects of meditation, but more how are our hamstrings doing? <laughs> and I remember having actually a gathering one time of, I collected all the meditation teachers I knew and all the teachers of Hatha Yoga that I knew and brought them together thinking we'd have a wonderful kind of community gathering. And after about an hour, the meditation teachers were over there talking about enlightenment and the yoga teachers were over there talking about stretches and hamstrings and I found myself <laughs> sitting in the middle feeling stretched between my two <laughs> hey, uh, now that's that's fascinating Richard uh, I was going to ask you this at the toward the end of, of our talk but uh, since you since you raised the question this uh, kind of uh, dichotomy between uh, yoga as stretching and yoga 
capital Y, <laughs> it's the deeper yoga, uh, is even more pronounced uh, today, these days, 40 years later, uh, when most people equate yoga with uh, asana practice. What's your take on, on the current yoga scene, and um, um, how, do you, how do you see it? I'm a pragmatic optimist <laughs> in the sense that I understood that, you know, my entryway originally into yoga was through the Hatha yoga, even though at the end of that first class, the meditation she taught was what really inspired me. But I spent many years in the Hatha yoga tradition really exploring it. And I think from that perspective, it enlivens the body. It makes it sensitive. It it opens the door to these deeper teachings. So my optimism is that so many people have come in the last 30 years through Hatha Yoga now and, and, and the younger generation that's coming through now, they're really open to what more, what's beyond just the Hatha Yoga aspect. So I, I have an, uh, an enthusiastic optimism that we're hitting now into a window where people are really interested in the deeper teachings. Um, the pragmatist in me sees all the studios around that are teaching primarily Hatha Yoga, and I do teach all over the world, and the first question I always ask when I go into a new studio is, do you teach meditation? And probably eight out of ten times they say no, and if they are teaching meditation, I ask them what form, and they'll say a Buddhist form, mm-hmm. and I say, well, you're a yoga center, <laughs> I understand Buddha was a yogi, but there is a whole yoga tradition of meditation and they often say, well, tell me more because I don't know what it is. Oh, so that's astonishing. I have a, a mission, uh, part of my mission would say by the time I leave this planet and graduate, uh, part of my legacy would be hopefully that I've been able to support all these yoga centers bringing in a yoga tradition-based meditation into mm-hmm. their centers. And so... Hopefully in 20 more years, if I go into these centers and I say, do you teach meditation? They'll say, absolutely. And what form a yoga-based meditation? Hmm. Richard, I'm, I'm uh, fascinated with uh, how you uh, combine uh, traditional clinical psychology with uh, you know, either meditation or yoga or uh, knowledge from the East. Uh, so could you give me a specific example? If somebody comes in, they're having anxiety, they're having depression, I, I can understand how you would use uh, the yoga, the meditation, but how do you use both the yoga, the meditation, and, and uh, the uh, clinical, uh, traditional clinical psychology approaches? Great, great, great question. When I go into a VA center, and I'm working like over in Martinez here in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. uh, and we're, I'm, on a, I'm on a ward, these are veterans who have depression, anxiety, traumatic brain injury, trauma, or somebody's coming into my clinical practice as a private client. So I'm thinking of this one woman uh, who came in with severe depression, and I'm thinking of this one man over in the VA in the group that I was working with. And while I took her kind of history and talked with her about what she thought might be behind her depression, halfway into the first session, I stopped her and I said, would you be interested in trying an experiment? And she said, sure. And this is the first thing I did with the group I was doing with in the VA. I, I took her into a uh, quick meditation on the nature of just 
be. Mm-hmm. And I think we all know what it is just to be. We've, we've, we're between two breaths, two thoughts, we're between two doings, and we're just taking a moment just to be. And in that, I asked her and I asked the vet five simple questions. When you're being, uh, where do you feel you're located? And both of them said, well, I feel like I'm this kind of presence, but it feels more like a field. And I said, as you're being, uh, what's happening to your thoughts? And they both said, well, they're kind of stopping. They're, they're relaxing. And I said, is this a familiar feeling, this sense of being? And they both said, yeah, I've known this all my life. I said, how much do you nourish it? And they said, none. And I said, does being need anything? And they both curiously said, well, actually, no, it, it doesn't. And I said, yeah, it's beyond want or need or lack. And with the depression or with what this VA uh, that was feeling, experiencing, I said, does being feel like it's been compromised? And they say, well, it's kind of like I forget it, but no. And I said, look at this that you're discovering, something that's always been with you. It's familiar. It helps you relax. It feels whole. It's never been injured. It's healthy. And it's part of your essential nature. And she said, after she came back the next week, she said, I want you to know that when I walked out of your office, I walked out feeling that there was something about me that wasn't depressed and didn't need healing. It lasted just a little while, but it <laughs> renewed my hope wow. that I could heal through my depression. Wow. And the, the vet, when I asked for feedback at the end of the 20-minute meditation, he said, you know what? I feel like I just came home. Mm. So what I'm seeing is I can introduce a, a core teaching, say a being, and help people feel that there's something in them that doesn't need to be healed, never has been injured, has always been whole, but they've forgotten it. And mm-hmm. so I use that as kind of a base from then we begin to look at what does need to be fixed or change the depression, what's motivating it. And so with that woman over many sessions, we, we began to understand what was underlying her depression, which ultimately cleared up when she saw the actions she needed to take that she wasn't. But every session we began with the sense of being. So I think personally as a clinical psychologist, I would be doing malpractice if I didn't introduce a person to that core within us, we could call it spiritual. I think of it as innate to us all, so it's more secular. Um, that is already whole. And when I practice and teach meditation or yoga, just like in my psychology practice, I don't want to teach to get there. I want to show them that this is already the case and this is our ground from which now we begin our clinical work or our yoga work. That's fascinating, Richard. Uh, as I listen to you, um, I could sense, uh, well, Dennis asked the question about integration. You use the word integration a lot or integrative a lot in, in your work. Um, but the initial process you put these people through sort of struck me as an adaptation of um, kind of a self-inquiry practice that's associated with people like Ramana Maharshi. Exactly. And would you say that? I would say because I'm asking <clears throat> them five questions. 
when you really go inside, how would you describe where you are, how you are, when you are, what you are, and who you are? So we're asking those timeless questions. Who am I? What am I? Where am I? When am I? And how am I? And they're all answered in a way that brings the person immediately into their, I would say, a, a gentle awakening of their deepest essential nature that Ramana was trying to get at. And that Western psychology hasn't yet fully brought in or woven into their to the practice, but I'm hoping as a pragmatic optimist that, that Western psychology is slowly coming towards these kinds mm-hmm. of realizations. And we know the study that was done years ago in clinical psychology, the psychologists were asked by the American Psychological Association, how many times a week in your practice do do your clients mention some aspect of spirituality or God or religion? And the overwhelming response was about 80%. So we know that people are craving a deeper connection with themselves, not Mm -hmm. just at a psychological level. Right. I think things uh, like you mentioned you were in graduate school, I think, at 71, 72. That's when I was there. And uh, I think the level of receptivity toward meditation, toward yoga, toward anything spiritual is... Uh, a thousand times more than it was then. Uh, one, one specific I had uh, uh, wanted to ask you is, how does what you teach uh, uh, help somebody with uh, addiction problems? We did a study, a uh, clinical study. I've done about 22 of them. This particular one was in New York with uh, 18 uh, people who were uh, chemical dependent, and they had also come through homelessness. So we had a very addictive population that was using all sorts of chemicals for self-medication. We gave them the protocol of meditation that I teach IREFT, and we got statistical significance for increasing their sense of hope, joy, well-being. And we were also looking at seeing if we could decrease their recidivism rate, which we were looking at over a period of time, and we feel like we were putting into place resiliency factors within them that could help them resist uh, relapse after they got out of the clinic where they were. So I find, again, uh, say with addiction, people are self-medicating. They're looking for uh, a deeper happiness that the the, uh, chemical that they're using or the could be gambling, it could be uh, you know, sex, whatever the addiction is, they're looking for a deeper core happiness, which unfortunately doesn't get fulfilled by the addictive tendency. Whereas when I find we teach them these life skills of meditation, it helps them access within themselves a core happiness that's independent of a substance. So that, that sense of being, which is core and innate, invites in a deep felt sense of well-being. Mm-hmm. I love there was a study I read this past year where they showed that when a person's on uh, a chemical or gambling or whatever, the parts of their brain that are affected slowly stop producing that joy and yet the addiction is still there craving for it. Whereas in meditation, it increased their sense of joy but it didn't diminish with each meditation. It actually kept increasing, and so they were accessing an innate joy within themselves. Mm-hmm. I feel if we can 
help people who have addictive tendencies discover that and give them the skills also to work with their emotions and their thoughts and how to work in relationship in the world. We're, we're giving them, you know, life skills that will help them then uh, counterbalance, antidote the, the chemical dependency addictions. Um, I would guess that over the course of the decades you've been working in this integrative way, you've seen a big uh, shift in how it's accepted in the mainstream. As you were talking, I recalled a time in 1971 when I gave a talk on meditation at a conference on addiction and was virtually laughed off the stage. <laughs> like, who is this hippie kid, you know, to, and um, I, I would think it's obviously changed a lot, but what have you noticed over the, the recent years? Well, when I did my first study in 2004 with the military, uh, they were interested in my protocol and whether it might be helpful for trauma. And uh, I did a research study with a group of wounded warriors uh, who were coming back from the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they told me, they said, look, we're soldiers, we're military, we don't do yoga, that's for sissies. Call your protocol something else than yoga and yoga nidra. So that's <laughs> when I renamed it Integrative Restoration, Integrated because it integrates our psychological aspect and restorative because it restores that innate sense of being and wholeness. And they said, hey, we're military, we can do Integrative Restoration. <laughs> Great. So at the end of the study, which I thought was fascinating, they saw the impact, they immediately integrated the protocol of meditation into their deployment health clinical center. So for the next four and a half, five years, any soldier coming through the healing program had access to our meditation protocol. But what was interesting is after a couple of months, they came back to me and they said, you know what, we really like what you're doing. We trust this protocol now. You can call it yoga. You can call it yoga nidra. Yeah, interesting. Hey, Richard, uh, there are many schools of uh, yoga asanas, uh, you know, hatha yoga. Uh, when you teach it, uh, which system do you use? And some systems are very rigorous, some are very easy. Uh, is there a particular system that uh, you, you prefer? You know, I feel fortunate that I started with the Integral Yoga Institute of Swami Satchinananda, uh -huh. and I did a number of years with Bikram Chowdhury in the hot yoga and actually taught for him. Then I was studying with um, Desika Char in India for many years, integrating all different aspects. It was my own uh, spiritual teacher, Jean Klein, though, who introduced me to the Kashmir approach uh, which comes out of Tandava, uh, it's a body sensing approach of Hatha Yoga where it's not about uh, striving for a goal or it's not about the form, but it's really using the forms of Hatha Yoga to elicit the body as vibration and sensation and mm -hmm. aliveness, making it sensitive. So the form I teach is actually utilizing all the teachings I receive from you know, Satchinananda, Bikram, Iyengar, Desikachar, and his father, T. Krishnamacharya, and my teacher, Jean Klein. It's an adaptation. It's really about helping a person let go of striving, competition, expectation, and really feeling their body as they're doing the forms and enlivening the body so that as they're really sensing, thinking slows down 
And I love the term that Dan Siegel introduced. It opens people to the world of infinite possibility. Mm -hmm. In other words, it helps decrease the sense of a autobiographical, self-referencing self, and it opens us up into this present-centered quality within us. So the the, the form of hatha yoga I use, and I also do it with the, the breathing. I call it breath sensing, uh, body sensing. It's really uh, towards uh, enlivening the body, making it truly very sensitive so we can feel all the subtle currents of energy, sensation, emotion, and thought, and, and be able to be very responsive in our life. Richard, um, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the... Uh central teachings or practices that you use in your work is yoga nidra. That may not be a familiar term to many people. Can you uh, explain what it means and, and what, it's, what it is, what the practice yeah. is? For you? Um, and, and just one follow-up on, on the form of Tandava. It actually comes from the Kashmir tradition of yoga, so that's more in keeping of what I teach in the Kashmir yoga. Um, yoga nidra, if I... If I think of the definition I use of yoga, which is to embody somatically our, our experience of being um, interconnected with the entire universe. There's a wonderful Sanskrit word, rutta, R-T-A, which means to be in harmony in each moment, feeling yourself as not separate from the universe. So I think the teachings of yoga help us realize that, and then nidra, means sleep, but for me it means a change consciousness. So that could be happy, sad, grieving, uh, joyful. Uh, could also mean sleep or waking consciousness. So yoga nidra would mean to know your interconnectedness both with yourself and the universe and feel in harmony no matter the state of consciousness. So we could be, say, upset or grieving, or even depressed, and yet feel this underlying essential nature that feels our connectedness with the universe. And <clears throat> Yoga Nidra, as I learned it, came through uh, Satyananda's teaching, Shivananda, but I was also exposed to the teachings of Satyananda in the Bihar school. Mm -hmm. But then I looked at all the people that I was teaching and the yoga nidra that I was learning had a lot of the cultural stereotypes from India where we were asked to see certain images like an antelope in our heart and a, um, I don't know, an elephant in our belly. And I realized those were archetypes from India. So I threw them out and I asked my students, what are you experiencing when you go into your heart? Is there a particular image that's relevant to you? And what I found is the practice became infinitely more powerful because it was now being uh, more individually related culturally, uh, psychologically, philosophically to the person that I was working with. So I tried to secularize this ancient tradition, which was a five kosha uh, model, and I added a sixth kosha because I felt... Please, uh, Richard, for the sake of our audience, define kosha. Kosha means a sheath that we identify with and may confuse at times mm -hmm. who we are, so our body, our emotions, our thoughts. So we don't say to ourselves, hunger is present. We say, I'm hungry. We identify with the feeling tone. We don't say anger is present. We say, I'm angry. These are, I have a body 
uh, we identify with these sheets. So yoga nidra, in a way, is a practice of self-inquiry where we're inquiring into these sheets and realizing that while I have emotions, I'm more than my emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, emotions are coming and going. There's something here that far surpasses them as an unchanging essence. Richard, uh, how, many, uh, how much time do you devote uh, daily to spiritual practice? And your spiritual practice, does, has it changed much over the years, or does it stay uh, pretty consistent? Um, it's changed over the years. In the early days, I devoted sometimes four and five hours a day to my practice. Mm -hmm. Now, in each morning I wake up, I do about 20 minutes of hatha yoga, I do 20 minutes of pranayama, and then I sit for about 40 minutes, and that's a daily practice. Mm -hmm. If I can, I'll get in another meditation. Um, then I'll do a retreat myself every year for a few days where I'm really practicing meditation a lot. Uh, I'd say the main thing is in the early days, my practice was really about searching to find that core happiness or essence that I would every once in a while stumble upon. There came a shift around, I don't know, 1998 when uh, that core essence of being switched on and it's like somebody got into the switch and soldered all the wires together and it just stayed turned on. Mm -hmm. So I find now my practice isn't about trying to find that essence but really nourishing it and, and being in it while I'm doing the practice. So it's a really, it's become an abiding meditation mm -hmm. where I'm fascinated now as we steep in our essential essence. What does it release naturally from our body things like love, kindness, compassion. They just I see there the outgrowths of steeping in that core essence of being. Right. I wanted to ask a follow up question on that and, and that is how your practice, your spiritual practice over the years has affected uh, your sleep. Uh, because I, I, I was taught that uh, you know you reach states of awareness where awareness is there even when you're asleep. Uh, have you ever had an experience of that type? Yeah, and that's actually partly what Yoga Nidra opens us into because as we're doing the practice, some forms of meditation ask you to keep brightening yourself up when the body starts to fall asleep. In Yoga Nidra, we don't. We learn how to navigate the states of sleep. So mm -hmm. I find many nights I can watch my body sleeping, but I'm present and alert, especially when I'm on meditation retreats where... I'm not so involved in the world. I'll go through day after day or night after night where I feel like I'm awake, but the body's sleeping. Mm -hmm. And I've also found that my sleeping pattern has gone from eight hours. It, right now, it's like four hours, five hours. Mm -hmm. And I think probably because I do so much meditation, I try to live an, an authentic life so I don't go to sleep with problems. So sleep really becomes another uh, time to meditate in a way. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we are learning to navigate states of sleep during meditation, just like we're navigating sadness, anger, irritation, happiness. We're not getting caught in it. And it's fascinating to realize that each of the states of sleep has their own signature. And as they're showing up, we can relate to them and not get caught in them. The body still goes to sleep. They could put an EEG on me, and I'd be in theta or delta sleep, deep sleep. But 
the, the alertness would still be there registering it. And mm-hmm. that's been studied at the Menninger Foundation with Swami Rama and a few other Swamis that they're in deep meditation. EEG records them in deep theta or delta, deep, deep sleep, dreamless sleep, and yet they're there reading a book, talking and having a conversation. Interesting. Richard, uh, speaking of EEGs, um, you've been doing over the years a lot of uh, research uh, as part of uh, your work with different populations. What are you looking into now uh, with respect to the the ongoing studies? We've done a number of studies with post-traumatic stress. Uh, We're doing two new studies right now, uh, which I'm really excited about. Uh, looking at the impact of yoga nidra with sleep, and I'm actually writing a book with a neurologist, Amir Khan, where he's got a sleep clinic. He gives uh, eye rest as meditation as the non-pharmacological intervention in his office and has run 175 of his patients through clinical studies showing that the meditation helps them not just get to sleep, but when they wake up mid-sleep, they can go back to sleep, and it helps them get restful sleep. And it's one of the things that vets often say to us that they've gotten the first night's sleep since the war when they've done the meditation. So sleep is one. The other is um, our continuing work with uh, veterans. I've developed an app, an iPhone app, and we're about to study it through the Institute of Noetic Sciences so we'll bring two groups, two cohorts together, one who will have a weekend uh, retreat learning iRest, and then they'll go home with the app and a weekly follow-up phone call. The other group will just get the app on their phone with the follow-up phone call. And our hope is that we can show statistical significance that the app alone can help veterans cope with their trauma, depression, anxiety, sleep-related issues. So I'm continuing to look at meditation and how it can intervene in depression, anxiety, sleep-related issues, and can we make it more accessible? So a lot of vets, mm-hmm. for instance, go to the VA because they don't trust it, or they go, but they're put on a waiting list for eight months. So can we give them things that they can access very quickly that can help them in their healing? And and when you say uh, you're studying meditation, is it uh, yoga nidra or you uh, studying different nidra forms? Integrative restoration high rest form that I've developed. So it's a okay. ten stage uh, meditation protocol that I secularize. So it, so anybody it doesn't matter their religion or their philosophical orientation. It's approachable, mm-hmm. easy to do. Richard, uh, thank you so very much. Fascinating. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, uh, Phil, any final uh, questions? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love Richard to let listeners know uh, how they can find out more about the methods uh, he's, he's teaching and mm-hmm. if there's any, um, any events or uh, something, he, books, lectures, anything he'd like to let people know about. Oh, great. Thank you, Phil, Dennis. Um, you know, our website, iRest. US, and, and I should say to our listeners, that's the letter I, R-E-S-T, dot U-S. Yes, the letter I, R-E-S-T, U, uh, dot U-S. Um, there's our website on there, are, are all of our events, 
um, our programs. There are a lot of downloads that people can get mm-hmm. to try out meditation that's uh, free. And it's also a gateway where we have posted all of our research that we've done. Um, then I have recently completed an online course, When Self Falls Away, which is at udemy.com, U-D-E-M-Y.com. Uh, when Self Falls Away is a, a three-and-a-half-hour course that's really looking at the advanced movements of meditation when we go into this abiding meditation with being. So I'm both orienting people and giving them meditations. Uh, I've got several books. My, my latest book, uh, two offerings. One is the IRES program for healing PTSD, which has 42 meditations that incrementally show the program for healing or helping people heal their trauma. And the other offering is a new release through Sounds True IRES Meditation for Health resiliency and well-being, where again I'm offering many meditations that are geared towards developing that core sense of being and well-being that we take into all of our life circumstances. Well, uh, Richard, uh, thank you so much. I'm sure we want to do a follow-up interview at some point in the future. Uh, A lot of uh, great stuff you're involved in, and I feel we just uh, touch a, you know, just scratch the surface. Uh, my name is Dennis Ramundi. Uh, my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda, and our guest today has been Dr. Richard Miller, the founder, executive director, and president of the Board of Directors Integrative Restoration Institute. Uh, Richard, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come on with us today. Thank Thanks, you, Richard. Thank you, Phil. Great. Spirit Matters, spiritmatterstalk.com. Until next time. Thank you.